Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for February 4th, 2021, the Jewish Space Laser Edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm joined. Jewish Space Laser. By the sound, the sound, you are not a Jew. You cannot make the Jewish space laser I don't know. sound. I feel like we should welcome That's him. Not if he's going to make good sound effects. He can. He can do that. That's John only bad. has one sound effect. It is that sound effect, <laughs> which he uses for yeah, but that's, everything. I like it. It's though. having its moment. The Jewish space laser has a little more <laughs> basso in it. John's more. Well, you know, the, you know why there's you can't hear the Gentile space laser. It's very stealthy. Um, <laughs> it has a drink in its hand, though. You can hear the the click of the uh, the ice cubes banging against the side of the. But it the doesn't tumbler. interrupt anyone, unlike me. That's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, Yale University Law School, John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Today, did Stephen Breyer resign yet? Plots Watch, Day 15. <laughs> we will not talk about that. Uh, first, we will talk about how big a relief bill Congress may approve—a COVID relief bill. How many bridges will have to be built in West Virginia to carry vaccines into West Virginia? named after Joe Manchin, in order to get it passed. Then the racial disparity in vaccine distribution is shocking. We will talk to Dr. Uche Blackstock about how to narrow it. Then will Republicans punish QAnon-sympathizing, Pelosi-assassination-condoning, Jewish space laser conspiracist-mongering Marjorie Taylor Greene? They will not, but will the entire House punish her? What does the MTG controversy signal? Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Joe Biden and the Democrats are pushing a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. It would send $1,400 checks to most Americans. It would extend unemployment aid through September. It would provide big funding for more vaccinations and better vaccination rollout. It would have huge aid to schools to help with reopening, among other things. It would also, I think the version I saw, would raise the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Republicans say $600 billion should be enough. In fact, just the, that's the Republicans who are willing to compromise. They say $600 billion should be enough. So, John, um, why is President Biden pushing such a big bill now, and is it even big enough? Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's big enough. It depends how you measure. You know, I mean, in some sense, like, we're at a, you know, once in a eon pandemic here and it's feels like you should be throwing money at it given the the devastation in its wake however the congressional budget office said that the american economy will be back to pre-pandemic size by the middle of this year even if there's no further aid or to the recovery so now they also said that it'd be years before those who'd who'd lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic would be able to return to work so there's a the big economy and then there's the individual lives that have been devastated by it so I don't know the economics of whether a thousand is better than fourteen hundred, but I do know he wants to go big for you know a, a lot of reasons. 
I mean, it's not it's 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 not just to deal with the pandemic, but also to deal with a lot of the issues that have been uncovered by the pandemic. It seemed like in the most recent back and forth here that there's he doesn't want to move on the question of um, fourteen hundred dollar direct payments or uh, the extension of jobless aid, unemployment. But there seems to be some wiggle room on on direct aid to states and and the federal minimum wage. Having said that, Chris Coons, the senator who is close to Biden, didn't seem like there was any wiggle room on direct aid to states. And the reason direct aid to states, to remind everybody, is so important is that the states have budget requirements that mean they can't do what the federal government can do, which is go into debt in the same way. So they are feeling incredible pressure um, and need the help. Emily, in, in 2009, when President Obama came in, in the midst of a huge and growing recession, there was a the TARP bill, the recovery bill. I think it was the was it TARP, and I can't remember if it's if it's TARP or the, the, the American. TARP passed under Re- Bush. Yeah, no, it's not TARP. It's the A American Re- the Recovery Act that that Obama pushed. Ended up being significantly smaller than his his liberal economist wanted it to be, and a lot of Democrats think that the recovery from that recession was as a result much slower, and so now they want to do something, and they never got a chance to do another bill. Do you think Democrats should think like this is going to be the only bill we're going to get a chance to do? So let us, in fact, throw the kitchen sink in it, a $15 wage for the kitchen sink into this bill. I mean, I think they sort of have done that and that there are two lessons. One is that both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama waited in hopes of bipartisan support, which then never materialized. And so you have months go by in which Republicans sort of seem like maybe they'll come over and then they never do. And you've wasted, you've dribbled away the whole beginning of your presidency. So it seems like the Biden people have really taken that lesson to heart. And then I think the other lesson is that we... Many more economists think now that it is acceptable for the United States to be heavily in debt, to borrow huge sums of money, to let the money printer go burr, as one of the memes about this says, and that you can do that with less danger of inflation overheating the economy than I think was the previous mainstream consensus. This is not my great field of expertise, but I feel like there has been a real shift in how economists think about borrowing money and that this is a kind of Keynesian moment where we're supposed to be borrowing in order to make sure that the economy really comes back and that this bill has redistribution in it. Like, that's why you're seeing these checks go out. Biden did say that he was open to the idea of targeting them more than the current proposal, so not having the checks mailed to people in higher income brackets. I mean, there was already a threshold, but he seems to be open to having fewer people who are kind of middle class, upper middle class receiving them. That seems to me like it could make sense. John, do you think there is actually a compromise that gets meaningful numbers of Republican votes, enough Republican votes to get to the 60 vote threshold they need to avoid this bill being filibustered so that it doesn't have to pass under reconciliation or not really? I think um, I would frame the question slightly differently. I think they're going to go ahead with reconciliation. We, we saw that the motion to proceed passed in the Senate, which is really the first thing you have to do to go down the long road to get to reconciliation. You can have a reconciliation bill that gets Republican votes, and that's what they're looking to try to do. So I think the 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 question of the filibuster has left the station, if a question can leave a station, which is itself a question, which then leads the question to, can a question about leaving the station leave the station? But while you ponder that, the the reconciliation bill is going to happen. <laughs> 
Um, well, you ponder that or turn off the show. Those being two really acceptable choices. Continue. The um, the reconciliation, this is going to, I I think, unless something strange happens, this is going to go through reconciliation. Then the question is just how many Republican votes you get. And then the question is, A, what does bipartisanship mean? So what if you get like six of those Republicans or three or four? Does that mean it's bipartisan? And does that really mean anything? In other words, can you build on that? Um, and and what what strength and weight does bipartisanship really have politically? Um, and someday down the road, we'll talk about why this matters for some senators because of the, the 2022 um, playing field, which tends to be at the moment look a little grimmer for Republicans. More are up in more are up in 2022 than Democrats, and also in states that have open seats or incumbents um, where it's where they're more battleground states as opposed to, to secure states. And so we're going to see whether that has it puts any political pressure on Republicans to to act or in fact vote in a bipartisan way. Emily, the bill, if it goes to reconciliation, it has to meet these incredibly exacting standards. The bird rule whereby it won't raise the budget deficit for 10 years. We talked a little bit about this last week. There's a great Ezra Klein column in the New York Times I recommend to people today about on Thursday about this question about what you have to do to meet the bird rule and how absurd that makes the Senate, how it's impossible to achieve any policy aims. And of course, this means that things like the expansions in voter rights and voter accessibility that Democrats think are important to saving democracy have no chance because they have nothing to do with the budget. But even something like the federal minimum wage, which which a lot of Democrats would like to raise to $15 and which the vast majority of Americans think should be raised to $15, has no chance because it doesn't fit in this uh, pocket. Does the fact that this bill is basically just going to be like a bunch of money, not really policy ends, it's just a big pile of money that's getting shoveled in different directions, but it isn't a real shift in policy, does that going to make Democrats think, you know, we really do need to do something about this filibuster? Are they going to be like, oh, we got a good win. That's all we need. We don't need a minimum wage shift. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's going to be pressure from the progressive wing to do more for exactly the reasons you said. These are high priorities. Voting, minimum wage, immigration reform is completely out of reach in filibuster land, I would imagine. So that's where you see that pressure. But I also think you're right that you could imagine the Biden administration taking a victory lap and a lot of senators. No, I'm not sure it's a lot. A few senators. I mean, let's get back to Joe Manchin and all the bridges or glittering towers that could be built in West Virginia. I mean, if this is up to Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kristen Sinema in Arizona, then no, those things won't pass because they don't want to take what seem to them to be tough votes to really change the balance of power by getting rid of the filibuster or by giving statehood to other, to D.C., to possibly to Puerto Rico. Like, the structural reforms are going to require lockstep support from Democrats, and right now that doesn't exist. The Bridges of Mansion County, John, how much should Democrats be willing to bribe Joe Manchin, Cinema, Mitt Romney, uh, any any middle middle of the Senate official in order to get something done. My view is they should do anything. They should name a state after Mitch McConnell, for God's sake. Yeah. Why not? Well, uh, give them give the Romney Fallon family like exclusive permanent rights to water ski in the Great Salt Lake and no one else can do it. But like give it to them if you if it gets you what you need. 
Yeah. Also, it's a good. I'm also. We'll see at the end of the um, process what Manchin actually gets. I mean, part of what he's getting is attention. And he likes to be a player. He was a governor of a state and a pretty popular one. Um, thought about going back to being governor because the Senate can be um, kind of a boring place, particularly for governors who've actually had to do things. So part of it may be um, that he likes the attention. He likes trying to get things done. I I think he cares about the people getting the, the paychecks, which, uh, you know, um, and, and there are a lot of people in West Virginia um, who will benefit from this money. So I'm not sure that, uh, well, we'll see what he, what, what specifically gets in the bill. Is there going to be a, remember the corn, corn husker kickback that was briefly tried to get Obamacare through for Senator Nelson in Nebraska, a Democratic senator, that never got in the bill because it was discovered that this was a payoff to him. Um, we'll see if there's any of that in this. Um, now, for Republicans, I think you can buy... Susan Collins is a big fan of returning earmarks in, in the David Plotz school. She thinks it was a disaster, that it basically gave authority to the executive branch by getting rid of uh, earmarks, which were a way for Congress to maintain control over its spending and were a way to get these kind of, get, get any kind of bill through. But I think you basically, you got Collins, Murkowski, Romney, <laughs> and then the list kind of ends there. And we see from the retirement of Rob Portman that, that, that uh, you know, senators who might have been considered more moderate than, say, a Ted Cruz uh, are leaving because, A, the Senate isn't that fun anymore, and B, because they know that if they did anything that smelled of bipartisanship, they would catch hell at home. And that's the—we've talked about this before. That's the problem. We'll talk about it more with Marjorie Taylor Greene, but that's the real problem with bipartisanship is— um, is the is the structural challenges they face at home. Did Rob Portman ever do anything bipartisan? I feel like he would sort of dangle himself out there and then withdraw. Turns out Portman got bipartisan co-sponsors on the fourth most bills compared to all senators. It's pretty oh, high. Damn. Uh, boom. Before we leave this, I do want to say a few kind words for Joe Manchin, who I think gets a lot of heat because he is, you know, his his views on climate are not great. He is a conservative Democrat by any measure. Uh, but this is a guy who's running in I th- the, maybe the most Republican or most Trumpy state. He's managed to hold the governorship. He's managed to win the a Senate seat there. You cannot hold him to the standards that you hold a senator from, you know, from Connecticut or from uh, Vermont or Massachusetts or California. He just, for him to be able to be an effective senator from his state, he, he's got to take a very different position than other people. And I, I give him credit for, for really, you know, being a pretty good democratic soldier when it's necessary. And also for, you know, for managing to, to, to keep the job, which nobody, no other Democrat could hold in West Virginia at this point. That is a lost seat. It's kind of like what Susan Collins is to Republicans. I mean, whenever Republicans go after Susan Collins, it's like, yeah, but who else could hold that seat right now? Just her. Well, I don't actually know if that's true about Maine, but I think you're right about West Virginia. My question about Joe Manchin is, isn't he like 65? Is he really going to run again? And if that really is a lost 65 seat. 65 for senator. Oh, my God. Yeah, senator. He's, he's, like, he's got like several he's more terms in him. <laughs> oh, come on. I mean, that's maybe true, but it's depressing. It's totally true. But I don't think he's up for election for four Robert more years. Bird, Robert Byrd held that seat till 
his All right. Well, deep fine. 80s. I was just there's an alternate. I always wonder with Joe Manchin if he just gave up on the idea that he was going to win again and that the Democrats were going to hold that seat beyond this. Like think of the vistas that could open before him. I, let me put it this way, Emily. You're closer to death to and 65. Retirement. <laughs> You're closer to 65 than he is to retirement. Okay. Yeah, and his Tennessee. term doesn't end till 2025, so he's not up again for another 4 years. Three. Right, well, that's sort of my point. Like, you could see this as like, you got four years, dude, and that's enough. You'll be, what, 69? Like, that's a good, respectable career. We shouldn't all want everyone to stay in office until they're in their 80s and 90s. Slate Plus members get benefits on Slate. Zero ads on any Slate podcast. Bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence and bonus segments on our show every week. And... Slate Plus members, you're supporting the work that we here do here at the GabFest. Your Slate Plus membership is only $1 for the first month and then $59 for a whole year. To sign up, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Our topic this week for our Slate Plus bonus segment, we're going we're gonna to do a uh, David Plotzi topic. We're going to talk about CityCast, the state of CityCast, my new business, what we're up to, what's going on there, how you can participate in it. And we're also going to preview a great Slate Plus for next week. So make sure you listen both for this week and for our preview of next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. White Americans are getting vaccinated at higher rates than black and brown Americans, even though death and serious illness disproportionately are hitting black and brown America. We are joined by Dr. Uche Blackstock. She's an emergency physician, founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity. She's also a Yahoo News medical contributor. Welcome to the Gab Fest, Dr. Blackstock. Uh, can we start by talking about um, the vaccine disparity. What numbers do we have about the disparity along racial lines uh, with vaccination, COVID vaccination, and 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 what sense do we have about what is causing that? Right. So, so first, I'd say that the data that we have thus far is incomplete. Right now, we only have about th- twenty-three states reporting uh, racial and ethnic demographic data, and even those states aren't 
reporting complete data. Um, but we, what we do have based on the data from those 23 states is that in some states, uh, you know, white Americans are being vaccinated up to three to four times um, at a higher rate than, than black Americans. So it's obviously incredibly profound and we need to put more pressure on states to uh, be reporting that complete data because obviously this is just sort of, we're seeing some early trends, but we don't know how profound the disparity truly is. I mean, I was reading this Washington Post article by Aaron Cox, Julie Zosmer, Lola Fadalu, and Jenna Portnoy that was about vaccine distribution um, in a bunch of American cities. What struck me was that uh, the way in which it lines up with geographic problems. So there are these hotspots for COVID, right? We've known that for a long time. People who live in crowded housing, people who live in neighborhoods where there are lots of people going out to work, multi-generational households. Um, and in D.C. and certain other cities, those are the neighborhoods with much lower rates of vaccination, which is totally off in terms of just like preventing death and serious illness. And what's happening is that, you know, cities and states opened up vaccines to everybody over 75. And so you have white people going to clinics in poor neighborhoods where they never ventured. The lead of this Washington Post story is about um, an organization called Bread for the City in D.C. And I actually used to be on their board. And so there was just something so hard for me about this kind of information. And I guess it's not surprising. I mean, people are also reporting that they're spending hours trying to sign up. And so you're sort of rewarding, I think, like just more affluent computer savvy people at the expense of these neighborhoods. I mean, what about just bringing the vaccine to hotspots? Like, would that right. be a way of dealing with this? You know, it's it's interesting because I think when you look at the um, the advisory committee on immunization practices, that's the CDC committee that came up with the recommendations for which groups get priority. I personally think that it was an opportunity to for them to use race explicitly, um, which is obviously very controversial and definitely something that legal scholars argue about. But we know exactly which communities are being most heavily hit. And we know that it's a product of systemic racism. We know that all of these factors that have um, contributed to certain communities being disproportionately impacted, such as you mentioned, overcrowded housing, you know, needing to use public transportation or working in public facing jobs. Those are all factors that influence these very high rates of infections. And then thinking about which communities are overburdened with chronic diseases. Again, like that's not a coincidence or a mistake. So, you know, when my sister and I, we, we wrote this piece in Washington Post last week, we thought that we actually said that we, we think that, you know, race should have been explicitly included in that prioritization scheme because, I mean, the problem is we can do it geographically. That's, I think, probably helpful, but it won't encompass everyone that needs to get the vaccine. There are other uh, criteria that you can use. The CDC has an index called Social Vulnerability Index, which looks at different census tracts and uses like different 20 different pieces of criteria to decide like how structurally vulnerable a community is. And I think there are probably about 12 states that are actually using the SVI to determine who gets prioritization. But all that to say, I think that the states just needed to be more intentional about making sure that the communities that were heaviest hit had access to the vaccines. And it's not just about 
putting the vaccines in those communities. I think that's just that's half the job. But as you mentioned, the registration process, right, if people don't have access to smartphones, if they don't have access to computers, how are they going to sign up for vaccine appointments? Right. So it's thinking about how can we create systems that make it easier for people, the people who actually need to sign up to sign up. So let me pick up there, Dr. Blackstock. Is there in the hierarchy of things that need to be tended to, what is the basket of things that, I mean, one is awareness of the problem that this distribution inequity exists. The other is some of the specific challenges of different communities. The others is, you know, in DC, Ward 3 coming over to Ward 8, as Emily was talking about, um, although they appear to, and then and then on top of that, is there anybody um, in the Bronx, they're they're um, in New York. They're just they've just now um, said they're opening Yankee Stadium. I think um, to maybe that's to try to uh, deal with the distribution right. issues in D.C. They tried to change the zip code requirements. Is anybody catching on to this? And and are any solutions ones that can be copied by other states and cities? Right. Yeah, and, and I think um, as you see, a lot of what's happening is happening at the local um, and the state level because that's where that's where vaccine distribution typically happens. And so I think what DC did, which was you know actually quite reactionary, but you know they they should have done it from the start. But in every neighborhood, should that you should reserve a certain allotment of vaccines for people who actually live in the neighborhood. It doesn't have to be all of the vaccines, but you can say okay, about sixty five to seventy percent we're going to reserve for people. Uh, who live in this community. And again, I think that, um, you know, when we're looking at the state's rollout plans, there are a significant number of states that didn't even have mention about an equity framework, thinking about how are we going to incorporate equity in, in the vaccine rollout. And, and, and as we're seeing, I think this is one of the reasons why we're having these disparities. Um, but I also think, you know, as you mentioned, John, that Vaccine accessibility is just one piece of the issue. The other piece, which is huge, is outreach. And, and I think that, you know, we've been hearing this, the term vaccine hesitancy, which I try not to use because I think, um, you know, I, I prefer to use like institutional trustworthiness. I think that um, there are social institutions like the healthcare institution, criminal legal system, educational system that have really treated black communities quite poorly over the years. And, and because of that, there is this distrust of, of, of seeking care. There's this distrust of the vaccine. People have so many questions about, about the speed, the, the apparent speed at which this vaccine uh, was developed. And so I have not seen the mass public health campaign that I think is needed to educate the public, one, but also, two, it needs to be done in really nuanced, culturally responsive ways, depending on the community that you're targeting. And so these are the things that really need, that should have been done months ago that we need to start working on very quickly. Yeah, Dr. Blackstock, I want to dig into that a little bit because I am shocked. I mean, if there's one thing Americans are good at, we're a great nation of marketers. Like we are, we have a history of great marketing in this country. And it is amazing to me how little marketing there is around the vaccine and how little, you know, I watch a lot of TV, never see ads like about it, never no, see encouragement. Never. There's nothing is, I'm not, when I'm looking on, you know, I cruise the internet, like doing things. No one is targeting me with things, telling me to get vaccinated. And I assume and, and and your point about it has to be very nuanced and specific, and it reached different people in different ways. What, what recommendations do you have around what that campaign 
should look like and how how in particular it should address some of these issues around institutional trustworthiness for black Americans. So, you know, what's interesting. Uh, the Trump administration, they actually had a plan to work with the Ad Council to use celebrities. And I think probably one of them was like a country singer. I can't remember which country singer, but it just felt so tone deaf. Um, and I do think definitely there's a role for celebrities. But when you'd ask people who do they trust the most, especially about health information, it's, it's really their healthcare professionals. And so I think that this is an opportunity, especially in, the, in, in black communities and brown communities, to work with healthcare providers in those areas about doing outreach, calling patients, being able to answer questions that they do have um, about the vaccine, um, but also to use tr- other trusted messengers in these communities. So um, barbers have actually helped in terms of health education education, even before this pandemic, in terms of diabetes education, hypertension education. And they could do the same with just talking to their clients about about coronavirus and about the vaccine. I think also there's a role for faith-based leaders um, as well. I know a number of churches have had uh, virtual town halls. But then like on, on, a, on, a, on a mass level, I think that we need to be seeing commercials on TV. We need to see uh, ads on buses and in trains. And also social media. I think social media is actually a place where there is a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And we need to be on there doing Facebook lives, IG lives. There need to be pop-up ads about vaccines and sort of breaking the science down and answering the most pressing questions that the public has about the vaccine. So Joe Biden, when he ran for president, talked about build back better. And the idea was that COVID has illuminated inequities in our society that once they've been uh, exposed to a broader audience, remedies can be brought in that can not only fix the momentary challenge of COVID-19, but install better systems to deal with and take care of ongoing challenges that those communities have faced, but people haven't looked at. So in that context, can you talk about community um, health workers, what they can do with respect to the vaccine, but then also if the army of community health workers is expanded, what they then could do after COVID-19 goes away? Right. Thanks. Thank you so much for that question. I think that um, community health workers are incredibly underutilized. Um, just for people listening, they are um, trained lay professionals who are either from the community or familiar with the communities that they work in. And they uh, do anything from a range of connecting community residents to social services, bringing medications, they can do vaccine education. I think they probably could even be trained to administer um, vaccines. But the problem is, is that uh, we don't have federal funding um, to support uh, an expansive community health worker program. And it's interesting because in um, developing nations, community health workers have really a key role in especially uh, in preventing a spread of infections. They go door to door and they have a relationship with community members in a way that others do not. And I think that we are in- definitely underutilizing them. There is a role for them. And I think the Biden-Harris administration should consider thinking about uh, policies to help support these programs and training these lay professionals to get in the communities. Because as you mentioned, we could have an army of community health workers out there going door to door, which actually needs to be done, especially for our elderly and our shut in um, and people who are disabled. We need that. I want to shift topics somewhat, although I think this is all related to the issue of school reopening. There's a lot of division in this on this topic in urban districts. We've seen less coming back to in-person school from black and brown parents, more fear. 
I've come to understand this a lot in terms of trust and lack of trust. I know your kids are back in school, and I wonder, you know, how you have been thinking about this issue, you know, personally, but also as you look across the country at these really pitched battles going on in some cities like Chicago, um, San Francisco, uh, um, between city officials and teachers unions. Right. Yeah. And it's just interesting. I was talking to my twin sister about this because, um, you know, she also heard one of uh, her children's also in school, but I'm uh, as, as a black woman, as a physician, as someone who cares very deeply about health equity and whose children are in New York City public schools. This is something that I've thought about a lot. I think that especially in New York City, there was a missed opportunity for um, our Department of Education to really um, to do outreach with families. And I, you know, I know my school, my kids' school had three or four virtual town halls where our principal went through every step of the procedures that are going to be used to keep our kids and teachers safe. And for me, that was reassuring. That's one of the reasons why so many kids from our school returned, and we actually have five days in-person learning. Uh, But the problem is that every school is different. Every school has different uh, school leadership, and that's not standardized. And what we're seeing, as you mentioned, you know, black and brown families are worried. They're concerned that the school system is not going to take care of their kids and keep their kids safe. And I can't, and I have to say that I understand. <laughs> um, and the problem is, is that there is, we have data out there, although it's, it's not complete, but we have data out there suggesting that below a certain level, schools are not key drivers of infection and that we can actually return safely to schools if we have these mitigation practices in place. And so that's been really difficult for me to know that um, the science is on our side, but that the children that do need to be in school are not in school. And I think that the conversation around school reopening has just become so polarized where if you want schools to reopen, and this happened to me on social media, people said I was being anti-teacher, anti-educator. And I was like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 let's let's slow down. First of all, let's center who is most affected by this, the students being out of school. I have a four and six-year-old and last spring, and I know from a lot of families, was incredibly difficult. My children are not engaged by remote learning and people talk about, oh, but we just need to put more support towards remote learning. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that's really going to make a difference. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> Especially for kids without the ages of your kids. Especially young yeah. children. Yeah. And, and, and I think that they're, they're, they should be in school. So we should be making every effort to get them in school safely, right? And, and this is like the nuance of the conversation. It's not like we're, we're, I'm saying, return back to school just like how it was before March. It's with these mitigation practices in place to keep everyone's safe. And I also think that teachers have to understand that for now, there's not going to be a zero risk situation. And I think as a physician, I get that because I deal with risk all the time in caring for my patients. So there's not going to be a zero risk situation. So what can we do to make sure that we lower the risk? So I knew sending my kids to school, there was still a risk. But when I, when I, weighed the risks and benefits of of keeping them out of school versus in school, I I, I thought that putting them in school was was important. And so far, we've been been fortunate and lucky. 
my son goes to an urban high school in New Haven. He is not back in school. The city did bring pre-K through five back. Um, not as many children have actually returned to school as I think the school district was hoping. So there's this anecdote that is part of how I'm understanding all of this in my city right now. And I wonder if this makes sense to you. So in March, Simon came home and said, oh, they made an announcement over the loudspeaker. Now there's going to be soap in the bathrooms. Like before there wasn't soap. Now there's soap. This is like a week or two before they closed because of COVID. And I thought, and Simon thought like, oh, good. Now there'll be soap. Like, yeah, it's bad that there wasn't before, but like good soap, toilet paper, good. A lot of parents, it comes up over and over in board of ed meetings. Like you didn't have soap. You didn't have toilet paper. We don't trust you to keep having those things. How can we trust you with our children? And this is a city that actually has school buildings in good condition. And there's been a lot of inspecting of, you know, the HVAC. So it's, and yet I feel like I've come to understand my own willingness to send my kid back as like part following the science, like you said, but part also that I'm kind of naive, like, and I'm kind of entitled and used to thinking that in institutions are going to work. And a lot yeah. of people have these longstanding experiences with schools in my city that are not that. And well, so... I understand why they don't trust. And yeah. yet it has this, yeah. No, no, I think it's, this, it's the same issue with the vaccine. I think people underestimate how much racism traumati has traumatized black people to the point where if you present, present us, here's the data, here's the data showing this vaccine is actually works, right? There's high efficacy. Oh, but, and look, also here's the data showing that if you put mitigation practices in place and, and schools now they're going to do it, people are like, no, I'm done. I can't even argue with that, right? All I can do is have conversations with people. I can I can put responsibility on our department on our board of ed, you know, the DOE to make sure they're doing everything that they can to make these schools safe. That's their responsibility, right? And 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 the parents have to at some point, you know, get get buy-in to to you know agree that yes, I, I'm I'm okay with sending my kids to school. It's but but I, but I always say these are examples of how traumatizing racism is. Right, and I think teachers, and not necessarily you know at all just black teachers, lots of white teachers because there are lots of white teachers in public school also have these feelings of distrust that we haven't sufficiently grappled with. Dr. Uche Blackstock, thanks for joining us. Come back anytime. <laughs> On Thursday morning, as we're taping, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a member of Congress from Georgia, newly elected Republican, there will be a House vote, it seems. Full House will vote on whether to strip her of her committee seats after the Republican caucus declined to do anything. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy declined to do anything to discipline Greene other than to deplore her remarks. Her remarks, of course, were pretty terrible. She condoned the assassination of top Democrats, including the leader of the House, Nancy Pelosi. She blamed a Jewish space laser for the California wildfires. She harassed Parkland shooting survivors. She claimed Newtown was a false flag operation. That's just a small sampling of some of the craziness that Green put out on social media and elsewhere in the months and years before she was elected to Congress this fall. Mitch McConnell denounced her, quote, loony lies. Uh, but the Republican Party is showing no interest in purging her, Emily, because, in fact, she seems to speak for, if not the majority, at least the dominant force in that party right now. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess the way we're supposed to think about this is that it's an open question whether she's the dominant force. I mean, Liz Cheney, the number three in House leadership, held on to her position pretty handily. I think it helped her that there was a secret vote in the yeah. House. Uh, and of course, this was controversial because she had voted to impeach President Trump and denounced him. Marjorie Taylor Greene is like the Trumpiest, Trumpy representative. And I mean, the conspiracy theories are really wild and really disturbing and some of them are violent and yet she got a standing ovation from half the members of the house yesterday and kevin mccarthy the leader of the republicans in the house is not going to kick her off these committees so now the democrats have this idea of forcing this vote to put everybody on the record i have to say i mean john what do you think about this idea of one party telling the other party which committee assignments are acceptable the Democrats are going to say, well, this is just like so out there, we have to do something. But I just wonder about this precedent. What do you think about that? I think it is actually unprecedented. I'm not um, I'm not positive about that, but I don't think that's that's been done. Certainly not formally. I think when a member advocates for the assassination of the leader of your conference, you get to do what you want. Um, the question is whether it's politically smart. It is helpful for Democrats to define the entire Republican Party by Marjorie Taylor Greene. In the same way that the Republicans and the president and politicians forever have, um, the previous president, I should say, have tried to define parties by their most uh, revolutionary members. So leaving her on the committee uh, would allow them to keep doing that. I'm not sure that her being off the committee will stop the fundraising letters that that um, talk about all the crazy things she's done that Democrats are sending out, um, which, by the way, is a part of the problem. I mean, obviously, Marjorie Taylor Greene is 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 a problem for the Republican Party that has to play footsie with these forces of extremism to keep their majority, which is what this is all about. I mean, Kevin McCarthy has to um, he doesn't want to split in his party in the old days you know when politics was uh on the in the democratic party when politics operated in a more reasonable fashion tip o'neill had to coddle the blue dog democrats the bull weevil democrats who were basically quite conservative and aligned with ronald reagan more than with liberal democrats but o'neill allowed them to do what they needed to do in order to stay majority leader so that's the way politics is supposed to work in this case, McCarthy has to, in some ways, allow her and those who would give her a standing ovation to be crazy because he wants to one day be majority uh, leader. So that's the structural problem that's that's at issue here. And it's a part of the structural problems that 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 kept Republicans quiet for two months while the president was saying something that was a lie, which is that the, that the party was that the uh, election was overthrown. And it was a result of that cowardice in the face of structural political pressure that led to the insurrection. So I'm not trying to downplay this. I'm just trying to explain why why it exists and why it's going to continue to exist. If you want to be a majority and don't have the courage to kick out people who say things that are both insane and dangerous, we're going to keep facing this time and time again. I, I want to make a couple of points. First of all, I think uh, I, I too don't know. I agree with you, John, that that what she has said about uh, assassinating Pelosi makes her puts her in a different category than anybody else. I mean that that se- it does seem to me that Democrats have every right to do whatever it is. The stripping of committee assignments is a kind of hilarious punishment. I mean, does anyone think that's the source of anyone's power influence in on the House and the GOP? 
in any way these days. It's not they're not really there for the subcommittee hearings. Like it just gives you more time to go on Fox, more time to rail against whatever it is you want to rail about. Marjorie Taylor Greene did not come to Congress to work on the nitty gritty of of bills that Congress is considering because the House isn't going to consider any bills that are meaningful that she would have a say on. Can I so just that's a that's yeah, interject quickly. Yeah, this is a show vote, though, because you're putting the rest of the Republican Party on the yeah. record, which is maybe where. Yeah, you sure. Know. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's a show vote. Yes, it is a show vote. But it's a it's it is the Repu- whether where the Republican Party is, is deplorable and, and forcing them to take a show vote. Sure. Fine. But it doesn't it doesn't actually get to the issue, which is that sure. what you were pointing to, John, which is the issue is that the Republican Party is riven. It's completely riven into two forces and the force that sane people want to prevail does not control the party anymore and has and it let the snake get bigger and bigger and bigger and now the snake is the whole room and they they just there is no possibility of purging this force from the republican party the only thing that's going to get purged from the republican party if mitch mcconnell and kevin mccarthy tried to team up to purge those forces those people out of the party it would be mitch mcconnell and kevin mccarthy i think your party is it's yeah, so, I agree with you. like, what is going on? I mean, the so, conspiracist wing is the party. The party is the conspiracist wing now. Right. And then is that, as I saw some headlines this week, is that just showing how powerful right-wing media and right-wing social media is? That basically, like, there's this yeah. juggernaut from Fox News and Newsmax and f- Facebook, et cetera, that just has, it is the snake or created the snake. And it's a bigger force than any kind of establishment political one and that's how it goes like because there's I don't know part of me worries that when we that okay so yes it's important to show that Marjorie Taylor Greene is being embraced by the party on the other hand it makes her more popular and powerful in her world for sure right like absolutely well that's yeah she is a glorious smarter that's right and that's that's the important point here is that while Marjorie Taylor Greene and the people who give give her a standing ovation are not the majority of the Republican Party they are the majority of the activist passion of the party and she gains more power and energy and money and attention in these kinds of martyrdom moments not because people think yes she's right about the Jewish space laser or any other of the things she says, but because of what we talked about before, which is that she, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And she is presenting herself, as President Trump did, as a, a persecuted um, person. On, and you, her fundraising letters are, you know, a model of the form that she is a, a Christian and a patriot. And therefore, that's why she's being attacked. And that will only yeah, and she gets friend. name recognition and a ton of media attention. So that always strikes me. And then the other kind of larger question that I have no answer to, but I feel like we're going to be talking about for a while, is are these dark forces bigger now or are they just more in our face a lot because of the capital assault? Like, because we've, right? I mean, I don't believe that they're suddenly... Bigger. They're, big. they're bigger. You think they're really bigger? I'm, yeah, because it, I mean, we have this idea, like, oh, it's Trump didn't Trump didn't uh, change who we are, just revealed who we are. That's not true. I just don't think that's true. I think that that it. Yes, there are always people who are who are susceptible to certain kinds of thinking. There are always people who say, who who's who can be driven in a direction. But they've been people have been driven somewhere. They've been pushed somewhere by this combination of social media, by Trump's absolute selfish wickedness by a economic insecurity, by a, a, a kind of tolerance for racism that 
that used to public racism that used to be, you know, for at least a brief period had been suppressed in American life. And that has made people worse, made people more conspiracist, more susceptible to this. Did you guys read the Tom Edsel piece in the Times? Yes, I did, which is totally like in the vein of what you're saying. It's like these conspiracy theories, they're, they're growing, they're mushrooming. So here's my question though. And I really divide on this. Here's one side of me. One side of me is like, okay, there is this sense of incredible emergency when you hear some people talk, right? The civil war, the sense of like huge grievance, racial division, like the country is at stake, but it's bullshit. Like the country is basically fine. This is not 1920s or 1930s Germany. Like the economy is not totally in the tank. We are going to make it out of this pandemic, though it is tedious and wearing and, you know, terrible and the death that it has caused. So it's kind of phony, and it just makes me feel like Tucker Carlson has the power to make to conjure up a reality that doesn't exist in a lot of people's lives. Now, I mean, that's a very broad brush, and there are people who live in parts of the country, you know, the Rust Belt, these depressed towns economically, where maybe things do feel really dire in a way that I don't appreciate. I can imagine that to be the case. But this larger narrative it's wrong. And that, I just think it's, that's weird. Just like, I get caught on that. as like, wait a second. (laughs) But I think what Ed, what Edsel's work has, uh, has by connecting with the, the political scientists and the anthropologists and the sociologists who are looking at this, I think has been useful and illuminating is that it's, that it's both those who are feeling actual economic pain, but those also who are in a much larger group who are feeling status anxiety. And that is economic status anxiety, but it's also caste status anxiety, which is, in other words, the hierarchy and the roles that I was expecting everybody to play in American life and the life of my kid's future are going to be different. And the people playing those roles are going to be just different than, you know, either in skin color or, or in orientation or just kind of not what I know. And that sense of fear, which goes right to the center of people's identity, is what in, what causes politics to be an inflammation activity rather than just a kind of hobby people are passionate about. It goes to their central identity about themselves. And so if you've got somebody who is a warrior for your identity, then you're just happy to be at the rally cheering them on, even if what yeah. they individually say might be totally bonkers. Yeah. So I think that's what's at the heart of it, of what we're of what we're talking about and examining. And then the question is just how big and virulent is this is this group we're talking about? So that's a John. That's very well said. I, yes. I just realized, like, I'm in the the two pieces of culture I'm consuming right now, besides a couple of delightful French TV shows, which are which are. <laughs> oh my God! Uh, French TV is like taking over the world. We should. Are you talk watching about Lupin? I'm, it I'm, has great. I told I'm watching, David to watch. Yes, it I'm watching it at Emily's recommendation. Yes, and then I'm watching uh, Call My Agent, the new season of Call My Agent, which is oh. so great. By the and way, the conversation. The by the way, the conversation we are having right now about you know French television and <laughs> these kinds of things are are you know you could imagine somebody listening to that and thinking uh, you people are the no. thing that is threatening. It's in, my it's in life. But just because it's French, that is ridiculous. I mean, We're on like, Netflix like every, everything on. else. I, Everyone has a place on Netflix. It is true the division. But I want to make the point that I was going to make before I mentioned French TV. I have the floor. For a moment. Je peux parler maintenant. Je veux parler. Il faut que je parle. Um, the... Uh, so the two th- the other pieces of culture I'm consuming are David Blight's Civil War course, which I talked about. And then I'm reading Lords of Finance, which is this book 
I, I don't even know why I'm reading it. This book about the the people who ran the the central banks of the U.S., Germany, France, and England in the period between World War One and World War Two. And what is interesting to your point, Emily, is first of all, in the period of the United States before the Civil War, it is true that we were committing uh, one of the greatest crimes in humanity against slaves. But there was not an economic crisis, particularly in the United States. There was no, the people of the United States, it was a growing country. It was a country that was largely prosperous. That was a, it was a culture war. I mean, it had deep economic sources. And there was this, there was this, you know, uh, mass crime against humanity as part of it. But that wasn't, Mm, wasn't being. But a way of life was at stake. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, similarly, similarly, like in between World War One and World War Two, there had been huge economic devastation, and and the, all of those countries went through terrible economic crises after during the war and then after the war, and there was an enormous shift in economic power. But the the period when the Nazis rise to power, uh, as I understand it, it's not that there it's not that there is like that Germany is that the Germans the had been starving. very poor. They'd been very poor. They'd had a period of poverty in the early twenties, but. As a whole, the country was in okay shape. That's why they were able to arm themselves so quickly and become such a titanic economic power. So I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that the fact that you know there are jobs, the economy's recovering, you know the 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 sewers still carry the shit away, and and the electricity is still on. That doesn't reassure me that much. Can I recommend a writer who I think I really like think about often in this context? Uh, Monica Potts. Do you guys know her work? She lives in her hometown, rural Arkansas, and she's writing a book about that town. She wrote a piece for the New York Times called In the Land of Self-Defeat over, and it's about a fight over funding the local library in this town. Oh, yeah. It really, really gets it, like, what we're trying to talk about in this way that goes much deeper than I can articulate because Monica is, like, in the middle of all this. Um, Anyway, we'll put that piece in our show notes, but she's really a writer to watch on this topic. And- and just along those lines, the question of how you solve this problem, which Biden is talking about trying to solve, when we talk about bipartisanship, he actually, in his negotiations over the COVID, COVID relief bill, said to Republicans, or at least it was claimed he was said by one of the Republicans who were in the meeting with him, said, one of the things we have to, to do is figure out how to listen to each other better. And he was getting at this idea, which is not just listen to each other about the numbers in a, in a bill, but to understand what is behind these raging anxieties and rage and this outrage as a way of trying to pierce it or minimize it or lower it or somehow get at it because naming it is quite important to figure out how to get to it. But then you got to figure out how to get at it because otherwise it just continues to roil. May I just say one random thing about uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene? On her Twitter page, I noticed that um, she has the traditional line that says um, retweets don't equal endorsements. How does that work with her, given all the things that she's endorsed and signed up to? Is is it that she might back herself into a corner retweeting something that says the earth is round? Um, It just (laughs) seemed very odd. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are have finished watching your French show for the evening and you want to have a conversation with someone, what are you going to be chattering about with them? John Dickerson. I'm chattering about something I saw on Disrupt TV, 
from the Twitter account of um, Vala Afshar, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He um, he works at Salesforce and has a really great Twitter account that's just not poisonous and full of sort of useful, uplifting and and thought provoking things. But anyway, this on Disrupt TV, Jim McKelvey was on and he is um, one of the founders of Square. So as you all, everybody may know, Square is that cool little square that you, um, when you buy something at a flea market with your credit card, it attaches the top of someone's phone. He is an engineer. And when they originally designed the square, the most efficient way to make it was to make it long, the length, say, of a credit card. And it was efficient because it worked more often and better if it could swipe over a long period of space. But they purposefully designed it as a square, which is slightly less effective because they thought if it looks longer, it'll just look like any old credit card swipe thing. And people will say, oh, you just swipe my credit card. Now give me my, you know, DC Comics first edition that I bought at your flea market. By making it a square, it was less functional, but people would say, oh, what's that cool thing? What's And it would get buzz about the thing itself. And it seems to have worked because now they're everywhere. Um, but I thought that was a, a fascinating choice about design um, coming at the expense of efficiency for the purposes of, of, you know, basically marketing. Emily, what's your square chatter? Um, the the piece I read this week that was just the most delectable to me ran in Slate. It is called The Lousy Tippers of the Trump Administration. <laughs> it's by Mo Tachik. It's uh, Mo is a really voicey, <laughs> terrific writer who has been working, I think, at a high-end restaurant in Washington, D.C. Uh, she appears to be married to a chef from this piece. And she just, it's like she's been saving up all this material for four years about all the people from the Trump administration who showed up in her restaurant and the misdeeds, the the difficulty of pleasing them. Diane Feinstein also makes a kind of poor appearance in here. It's just a really great social history of dining in Washington during this period. And I think I also loved it so much because it was about reading, about eating at a restaurant, which I haven't done in so long. Who was particularly egregious? Stephen Miller is the opening anecdote. He comes with his brother and... <laughs> I won't give away the anecdote because it uh, it should really be fully read and absorbed on the page. Who else makes an appearance in here? Gary Cohn. I couldn't even remember some of these people. Oh, Wilbur Ross. <laughs> you don't he, get to be a billionaire by tipping a lot. That's for sure. I guess not. I mean, Moe's line about Wilbur Ross is, quote, he ordered the cheapest wine on the buy the glass list and didn't tip more than 14%, no matter how often you topped him off without charging. Anyway, lots of excellent details. Does she name the restaurant? No, she doesn't name the restaurant. Although I, I'm sure you will know immediately because, and in fact, I think you could Google it and figure it out because it's like a place where like the Obamas are going. Everybody seems to have like standing blue duck brunch tables there. What? I'm guessing it's blue duck. The Obamas. Okay. Because uh, President Obama's office is near there. The uh, Betsy DeVos. I saw an amazing fact, which is that Trump never ate at a single D.C. restaurant except at his hotel. Right. And she talks about what a difficulty that has been for high end restaurants in D.C. and, you know, what they've been trying to do to somehow create gin up some kind of clientele. 
Well, there's just wonderful. I, I didn't actually read the story. I just saw the headline that the Trump hotel is dead these days. There's nobody in there. And it just shows you how much that was an emolument, how much people were staying there simply to suck up to the Trump administration, not because it was like the best hotel in town or the most useful hotel in town. It was just like, oh, I'm, I want something from the Trump administration. I'm going to stay in this hotel. My chatter, also about vain, vain, glorious uh, misdeeds of the rich, is a wonderful story in the New York Times about 432 Park, which is a huge high-rise, like an enormously high finger into the sky in Manhattan, uh, one of the tallest residential buildings in the world. There are apartments there that they're almost all owned by shell companies, which you know, or like seem to be controlled by Russian gazillionaires or Azeri oil magnets, or in one case, J-Lo and A-Rod owned, owned an apartment there for a year. But the apartments, you know, cost up to $88 million. Your run-of-the-mill apartment is $16 million. What's hilarious is that it seems to be a terrible place to live because if you live at the top of a really, really, really tall residential building, it's very unpleasant. The elevators are constantly breaking. The As the building sways, the metal makes a horrible whining, moaning, creepy noise so that your house, your apartment feels haunted by ghosts uh, because they have plumbing that has to be gotten up 1,400 feet. Uh, it's at really high pressure. So when a high pressure valve busts, as it does, because it's under such stress, it will cause half a million dollars of plumbing damage to your apartment. And it's this wonderful story about all these rich people mostly anonymously complaining about how horrible it is to live in this tall tower. It's great. May I ask you all a question, both a question, which is um, what is the highest floor on which you would be, we would feel comfortable living? Huh? I've never lived in an apartment building. Like I can't, I mean, for me, it's like the first floor, but that's clearly not the right answer. I really don't want it to have to take an elevator. I hate elevators. I feel like that would drive me crazy. I Even like up three floors? I know. It's really dumb. Well, no, three floors you could just walk. That'd be fine. Well, but what, not I, if you have a lot of bags. Not if you have a lot of bags. But like you could sometimes walk. Like, hmm. I'm looking at the fifth floor of my, I'm in the fifth floor of my building. And I wish I was on the 11th floor. Oh. Uh, uh I'm at tree, tree level. The fifth floor in my building is actually really effectively the fourth floor. Um, I think I would go pretty high. I don't think I, I wouldn't go to like 80, but I would, I, you know, I've had friends who lived on sort of the 30th floor. We have Emily, John, we have this mutual friend who has a, a wonderful bar, apartment in San Francisco, which is up on a high floor. I would live in that apartment in yes, a red hot. <laughs> that's amazing. It's one it's of the most beautiful amazing apartment with it. Yeah, my grandparents lived on the 14th floor, and that elevator came pretty quickly. I don't think I'd live much above 15. Where I, I, um, uh, we're having this discussion in the context of uh, of living choices in in the city, and um, my family is basically they're the, particularly the kids. They're like, oh yeah, sure, 50th floor, that's fine. I'm like, no way. I Wait, because you think it's scary? Like, yeah, why? just like all, all the things that like I'm. I think in general. I am a person who has a, a kind of perimeter around him, which is constantly being scanned for threats. And usually it is a horizontal perimeter. But when you're up 50 floors, it's 
it's a vertical one. And I feel like you're, it's like being underwater. I feel like I don't know where the threats are coming from. And so when you're on the 50th floor, I feel like you have 50, you have 49 floors below you of just possible mayhem and mischief and, and things like what David's describing happening. Um, anyway, I'll let you know where we end up. Please. We're waiting with bated breath. <laughs> Listeners, you have continued to send us great chatters at at Slate Gabfest. The things that you're talking about at your cocktail parties, your imaginary, your imaginary non-existent cocktail parties, the cocktail parties in your head. Uh, please keep them coming. And we've, as we, we started something last week that I, we're going to try to continue, which is instead of me discussing your cocktail chatter, we're going to ask you to do it. If, if uh, we like your chatter, we're going to reach out and ask you. And this week, our listener chatter comes from Philip Cleveland. Hi, Emily, David, and John. My name is Philip, and my listener chatter is a beautiful tweet thread by Mark Miller that tells the story of a 100-year-old photo of his great-aunt Leslie and her son, Robert, he keeps in his home. The photo is a springboard for Mark to tell the story of Leslie and her life as a lesbian in the early 20th century. I won't spoil the full thread, but Mark lovingly writes about Leslie's life, her partner Lucia, his great-aunt's decision to marry to conceive her son, and so much more. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. And please tweet your listener chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Pew, 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 pew. Space Laser Slate Plus. Hello, Slate Plus. That's a Space Laser sound from John. Hey, Slate Plus. Uh, how are you? Good. Glad to hear it. So we have decided on next week's Slate Plus topic, and we have a little bit of homework for you listeners if you want to be able to fully participate. We're going to talk about In and of Itself, which is the incredible, for lack of a better term, film about magic by Derek Delgadio that's available on Hulu. And you'll probably enjoy our discussion more next week if you get a chance to see it. And you'll certainly enjoy your life a lot more if you get a chance to see it because it's quite magnificent. So next week we'll talk about in and of itself. And uh, we hope you get a chance to watch it before we do that. Today's Slate Plus idea comes from a listener, Norman Townsend, who wanted to know more about David's project, David's. You have started this amazingly interesting project to bring newsy podcasting to different cities and to have the kind of fun, effervescent reporting and commentary of podcasting in a way that the people of, say, Denver or Chicago might enjoy. <laughs> I think those are the cities you're starting with, but I know the plan is to branch out from there. So tell us how it's going, what we can look forward to, and maybe what some of the challenges are. All right. Thank you. What an, I'm so shocked. Really? Me? <laughs> what? Little old me? <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't even know what to say. Uh, let me take out my 500-page notebook. The... So I, as as I've mentioned on this show before, and as I mentioned at the top of it, I'm now running a company called CityCast. And uh, CityCast, I began in the fall, and now here we are in the winter. And you're like, what happened to CityCast? What is this plot? Is he even working? Is he just lying on his couch? No. No, I have not just been lying on my couch. We 
I've been preparing um, to really build something. And the thing that I'm building with the wonderful team that I've hired is going to be a network of daily local podcasts and newsletters in cities around the country. We're going to start in Denver and Chicago. I announced that this week, probably do a third city in, in 2021 and then sort of see how it goes. And then hopefully we'll become a network of 20, 50, 100, 1,000 one day all over the world um, of city casts. And initial ones are going to launch in March. Uh, Monday to Friday, be coming to you every morning. There'll be a newsletter and there'll be a podcast, which will be connected, but there'll be separate products, obviously, because one is audio and one is one is digital text. What we don't really need in the world, or we don't need as much as we think we do, is more information about our world or our community. What we need is we need to care more about them. And so what we're building is a set of podcasts around really passionate hosts. And these hosts... Uh, I think if you listen to the GabFest, I, I imagine that you feel you, you, you know, you know us a little bit. And if you think about podcasts you listen to, they are probably podcasts where you have a, a kind of a real emotional connection to the the host or with somebody you, who you appreciate, you want to spend time with. I hope you want to spend time with us. Um, podcasting, I think, is a pretty mediocre informational medium. It's not a great place to get a set of information, whereas a piece of paper is a great way to get some information. Podcasting is not because whatever we've just said has now vanished. It's gone back. It's like it back in time and you can't go track it down. But what podcasting is, is an amazing emotional medium and a way of making connections with people. And so what we're going to build is this daily podcast whose purpose is really to make people care more about their cities. And it will be interview based. Um, and it'll be about the news of the day. It'll be about like some subject that was just particularly gripping in Denver or Chicago that day. But with a host who, whose, whose mandate from, for me is to find a way to make people feel something about this. In that sense, it, in, in some ways, it's, it's more like uh, an, the old-timey newspaper columnist, the Jimmy Breslins of yore, or what Oprah Winfrey was when she was at AM Chicago. Uh, or even a little bit like what right-wing talk radio is, which is the, that the purpose the purpose is feeling. Like audio is the most feeling medium because of the power of the human voice. And we're going to build podcasts that are designed. Not We're not going to go into news deserts and suddenly become the prime source of information in those cities. We're going to go into cities that have really robust, strong media ecosystems. We want And we want to highlight the great work that's being done by the journalists in those cities and to make people aware and caring about the issues that matter most in those cities. And we're going to try to do that every day in podcast form so that it's something as you're on your commute and you just kind of want to check in on what's what really matters in Denver today. You'll get a little news bulletin from us, and then you'll get this sort of 10, 15, 20-minute conversation about some set of some issue that really will matter to you and make you make you care more about the city you're living in that day. When I think about the hosts that we've hired, we've hired a, in Chicago a guy named Jacoby Cochran, who's an amazing storyteller and, and teacher uh, who doesn't, who's not really a journalist, and in Denver, a woman named Bree Davis, who similarly is, a, is an activist and a, she's a podcaster, but is not, she's not a traditional journalist. But they're people who love their city more than anybody else, and they also think it's more fucked up than anybody else does. And I want them to be able to convey that love and that fucked upness in podcast form. That's our hope. And then to do that in those cities and then your city and another city and another city until, until we've, we've helped 
build community and connection across the country. And why not go to news deserts? That's a really valuable service, but it requires a staff that's probably three or four or five times the size of what, what we can afford right now. I hope that one day we'll be able to be a prime news source. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.